0: Welcome to the 70th A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series titled Contact, Art and the Pull of Print, art historian Jennifer L. Roberts will focus on printmaking as an art of physical contact, involving transfer under pressure between surfaces, a direct touch that can evoke multiple forms of intimacy. And yet it is simultaneously an art of estrangement. It requires the deferral, displacement, and distribution of artistic agency, and it trades in reversal and inversion. In this fifth lecture, Interference, premiered on the National Gallery's website on May 23, 2021, Roberts explores how the layering of images in printmaking, especially when grids and regular line work are involved, often results in the emergence of interference or moray patterns. While printers usually work hard to keep these disruptive eruptions at bay, some artists have cultivated them, allowing unruly patterns to emerge from the combination of seemingly rational image layers. Moiré patterns also bring printmaking into conversation with the sound arts, which are built on the same waves, frequencies, and beats that are used to describe print interference.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. This is lecture number five of this series, and this week we'll be looking at the phenomenon of interference in print. I'm just gonna dive right in with this image. This is Local Means, a lithograph made in 1970 by Robert Rauschenberg. It's part of a series of prints that he made in response to the Apollo 11 mission. In July of 1969, Rauschenberg had been one of a small group of artists invited by NASA to observe the launch of Apollo 11 at the Kennedy Space Center. The experience had an enormous impact on him and his work, and the lithographic series he made was his way of meditating on the impact and implications of the lunar missions. The series was collectively titled Stoned Moon. Now, while the title of the series could be taken, I suppose, as a reference to drugs, Rauschenberg actually called it Stoned Moon because the printing process used to create it was stone lithography. The prints were pulled from enormous limestone matrices, several inches thick, and weighing collectively hundreds if not thousands of pounds. So to develop this epic meditation on technology and futurity, Rauschenberg chose the most massive and primordial means available. To convey humanity breaking free of its traditional dimensions into weightless space, Rauschenberg chose the weightiest possible manner of making a two-dimensional image. In fact, two of these prints were the largest prints ever pulled from a hand-fed stone lithography press at the time. This is SkyGarden, 89 inches tall, made from three stones assembled together. Now, launching these lithographs was a technological effort that was commensurate in the print world with the kind of massive collective efforts at Mission Control for the Apollo mission. For two months, the printers at Gemini GEL worked 14 to 16 hours a day with Rauschenberg, Just one example of the scale of this operation, each impression of the larger prints required two pounds of ink. Rauschenberg's work here gets at a fundamental paradox of print. It's both light and heavy. In printmaking, images are stretched uncomfortably between their two polar states of materiality and virtuality. On the one hand, printmaking, we might say, issues forth vast flocks of replications overcoming the bounds of the singular image object, entering the strange, non-gravitational realm of mass reproductive orbit. But on the other hand, prints are born from direct physical contact between plates or screens, pulpy paper, and sticky, squishy, viscous inks. Prints are made under pressure and brokered by massive machines and equipment. Prints are made heavily, even if they circulate lightly. Local Means and the Stoned Moon Project addresses this paradox not only through its making on a stone, but also through its facture, particularly through the way the photographic halftones that cover this print work. Many of these prints were made from NASA photographs, and some of them Rauschenberg's own photographs, that had been translated to halftones and then transferred to clear sheets of acetate. And you can see Rauschenberg holding up one of those giant acetate sheets here. As you may recall from the last lecture, the halftone screen breaks continuous tone photographs into regular grid-like arrays of dot patterns. The acetates were cut up and placed on a lithographic stone that had been treated with a photosensitive material and then exposed. And then the stone was treated in the usual way and printed. Sometimes these transparent, acetates, occupied by halftones, overlapped. And what I want to draw your attention to here is what happens when they did. A moiré, or interference pattern, erupted. And on this print, you can see it there, among the palm trees. Now there are ways of avoiding or minimizing the moiré effect when combining halftones on a print, but Rauschenberg chose not to use them, choosing instead to allow the moiré to become part of the composition, where it echoes the billowing smoke of the rocket as well as the ripple of the wetland surface below. It's not surprising that Rauschenberg was interested in the moiré effect, because it's an effect erupting out of images coming into contact. Rauschenberg understood the surface of the lithographic stone as a space of contact, combination, transfer, and release. He used printing to bring images together that would otherwise seem incompatible, such as abstract ink washes and halftone photographs. The powerful oddity of such assemblies was mirrored in the environment of the moon launch itself, there on the space coast where rocket launches share space with palm trees, shock waves with rippling water, and lunar capsules with water birds. I've chosen this print as the introduction to this lecture on interference for several reasons. One, of course, is the literal interference it triggers in the moiré effect where the halftones overlap but it also exemplifies an array of broader themes about print that I want to explore through the interference topic. The main argument of this lecture is this. Strange things can happen when images come into contact with each other in the milieu of print. Interferences occur in the midst of which technology and nature can exchange properties, rational and random patterns can interpenetrate, and regular structures can produce irrational effects. These effects can emerge unpredictably and suddenly, like an explosion, a runaway chemical reaction, or a shiver. When images overlap, print can release a flinty pictorial energy that far exceeds the apparent placidity of its individual elements. And these effects suggest a form of spatial imaginary that is expansive but not optical or illusionistic in the usual sense. This is a form of space triggered by contact and palpation a kind of atmosphere that owes as much to sound and touch as it does to vision. It's a space of pressure and propagation rather than perspective, one that perhaps resembles outer space more than it does the usual pictorial space, and one that is uniquely aligned with print as an art of contact. Now, all of these qualities are captured by the moiré effect itself, so let's begin by exploring that. While doing research on screen printing over the past few years, I've been intrigued by the way the moiré effect pops up everywhere in the technical literature on printmaking. So if you go online and you're looking at the kinds of documents that are generated by printers talking to each other, such as advice on how to actually print things, moiré is everywhere. But no one was talking about it anywhere in the art history literature or the printmaking literature more generally. This eruption of moiré in its broad historical context and in its relation to 20th century print technology will occupy most of my time in this lecture today. Interference effects emerge in printmaking because printing matrices need to be coded into patterns of printing and non-printing areas. We've already looked at some of the different techniques and syntaxes that printmakers have developed to create these patterns, There are the fine lines, arcs, and crosshatches of copperplate engraving. We could also think about the lines and the stipples of woodcut and wood engraving, and next week we'll spend a lot more time with these kinds of processes. All of these processes can be done by hand, and historically they were done by hand. But they are, as you might imagine, quite slow. And what we begin to see in the later 19th and especially the 20th century is the introduction of photographic processes like the halftone for automatically generating these binary syntaxes. So we have the dots of the halftone emerge as a way of using the combination of a camera and halftone screen to create an image that has been binarized into dots by the action of the camera. Now, an important distinction to be made here is the distinction between stochastic and rational or regular versions of these patterns. The halftone is, of course, regular, rational, regulated by the open grid of the cross-line screen. There were historical precedents for this kind of binarization, however, that were stochastic or random. One of the more interesting precedents to the halftone was aquatint. Like the halftone, aquatint was a process that could create tonal areas on the plate out of tiny dot-like units. And like the halftone, it was an automatic process, or at least one that did not involve direct human inscription of the code onto the plate. Here's an example of a print made with aquatint, one that coincidentally also includes a water bird by John James Audubon, made in the 19th century. You can see how the image is broken down into dots that are a about the same scale of a coarse halftone, but these are not regular. They are random arrangements of pattern. Their randomness is actually created by atmospheric dynamics, by air currents and air pressure. Let me explain. To make an aquatint, you begin with rosin, which is a fine-grained powder obtained usually from pine resin. If you're a musician, you may be familiar with rosin because this is the material that's used to treat the bows of stringed instruments so that they create more friction with the strings. And I'd ask you to just keep this in mind because we'll be talking about the relationship between printing and music toward the end of this lecture. This rosin is then sprinkled over the plate. It's very light, so it falls very slowly and randomly onto the plate, being caught up by air currents on the way down. The simplest way to get it onto the plate is to sort of sift it through a sock, like we see here in this video, but it's also common to use an aquatint box in which the grains are stirred into a kind of cloud inside using bellows or fans, and then the plate is set inside this box so that the atmospheric grains can settle down upon it. Once you have dusted the plate with the grains, you put it on a hot plate so that the grains melt slightly and adhere to the copper. The copper plate is then immersed in an acid bath and the acid eats or bites into the plate around the tiny specks of rosin, which resist the acid. Eventually you have this binary topographical pattern of tiny mesas and valleys, which is typical of intaglio printmaking. And then these can be printed in the usual manner on an etching press. I like to think of aquatint as like engraving a cloud or pulling a cloud down to the ground and fixing it. It's these atmospheric dynamics that randomize the deposition of the printing areas. And this will become important as we think ahead to the way the moiré effect, even though it's made from regularized patterns of dots, tends to evoke atmospheric patterns like these stochastic ones created by aquatint. Okay, so the distinction between rational and stochastic having been uh, introduced, let's dive into moiré, which is a phenomenon that manages to be both stochastic and rational. What is moiré? Moiré emerges from the superimposition and slight misregistration of two or more regular patterns. A classic moiré pattern is composed of two sets of parallel lines that overlap at a slight angle but moiré patterns can also develop out of grids, dot arrays, curved lines, and innumerable other arrangements. The key quality of a moiré pattern is that it emerges in a non-linear way from its component linear structures. It does not exist in either pattern individually, either layer individually, but is generated only in their combination. Now, depending on the mutual angles, frequencies, and periodicities of the two patterns, moiré can crop up in a lot of places. Between two picket fences, between two layers of woven fabric, between two window screens, and as we'll see, between any two gridded images in print or other media. Two layers of a silk screen, a halftone on a silk screen, a halftone on a TV camera, a herringbone jacket on a silk screen, a striped shirt in a digital photograph seen on a monitor. And in fact, striped shirts are the classic cautionary tales used to train graphic designers and photographers in how to handle moire. An interesting aspect of many of these interference patterns is that although they are born from absolute regularity, they seem to turn back over into the stochastic world, resembling liquid or other natural patterns. Moiré patterns that crop up in digital rendering, for example, are often known as wood grain artifacts. With its resemblance to ripples in water, moiré pulls any image into a field of natural formal associations. It has a quality of dissolving or liquefying patterns and structures that are regular and rational in their components. Now, the word moiré emerges from the history of textiles. It's a French term that originally referred to the shimmering quality of what's also known as watered silk. In the traditional making of moiré fabric, a glossy, subtly corded silk is folded over itself face to face so that the parallel texture of the two sides of the folded fabric is just slightly misaligned. The two layers are then pressed between heated rollers in a process called calendaring. This generates a moiré pattern from the interference of the two linear arrays. Here we might note that the production of moiré and the practice of printing are closely related from the outset. The making of moiré silk is essentially a form of roller printing in which each side of the fold is used as the matrix for embossing the other side. There is a kind of miraculous quality about this transformation, and this too links it to themes in the history of printmaking. The moiré pattern develops from a kind of self-printing, self-marking, or self-making. The fabric prints itself and generates something that did not previously inhere in it. Indeed, an image that seems miraculously excessive in its swirling, stochastic beauty to the mechanical regularity of its original corded structure. Indeed, we might think about the moiré image as one of the family of what I called earlier a poetic images, images not made by human hands, that have such a deep connection to the history and philosophy of print. Again, the classic example of this in the West, which I discussed in Lecture 1, is the Sudarium, or Veronica's veil, the imprint of Christ's face, legendarily left on the veil of Veronica. Like the Veronica, like this veil, the moiré image is a miraculous image in cloth made without human hands. Like the Veronica, moiré brings printing, textiles, and non-human image production together. And here I would want to make one additional note about this particular Veronica engraving by Claude Melon. As we'll see later in this lecture, this is an engraving that is itself prone to the moiré effect because it is engraved in a continuous spiral all the way around, starting with the center of Christ's nose. Uh, The entire image is created just by varying the pressure of the hand as the burin traveled in a spiral around the copper plate. So this is a very regular structured image, which gets itself into trouble when it comes into contact with other gridded structures, as we will see later on. Now, although moiré emerges independently from the interference of two periodic structures, it can be cultivated or invited to appear by human intervention. In the history of print in the West, moiré was occasionally harnessed in the practice of line engraving, where the basic syntax of crosshatching creates ranks of near-parallel lines that intersect in ways that sometimes spark a moiré pattern. In the heyday of reproductive line engraving between the 16th and 18th centuries, moiré was often corded to generate a dynamic surface effect to prints and was often taken as a sign of the supreme skill of the engraver who was able to invoke and control these unruly patterns. Here's a print by Jan Müller, which is very interesting in the way it links the moiré effect not only to music but also to water. Um, We can see how Mueller, in this image that's about music and water, creating harmonic waves or beats with the line and the way the different lines intersect. So in a sense, this is a way of him showing off as an engraver, creating a kind of visual mark that evokes sound, that evokes vibration, that evokes that kind of dynamism, but that cannot, literally cannot be produced in painting at the time. In the literature on early modern line engraving that I'm familiar with, there's not much discussion of these early forms of moiré mastery. What discussions there are, however, are very interesting because they're both highly vivid and evocative in their descriptions of these interference effects, and at the same time highly ambivalent about the wisdom or propriety of allowing them to come forward in print. Here's a typical example by the art historian Martin Kemp, describing the eruption of marre in line engraving curved and straight lines and sets of parallels intersect in contrived combinations not only to create a series of carefully pitched tones but also to form strange patterns which are stylishly assertive in their own right they're not merely discernible at very close distances but are openly paraded across the surface of the print And I would just ask you to note the way he's talking about these patterns being contrived and also the way he uses the phrase pitched tones, two words that have to do with sound. Second, these discussions note with some discomfort the interference of qualities of fabric and textiles into the world of print. Here's another Mueller engraving after Bartolomeus Spranger's Venus and Mercury of around 1600. Here's a detail. Look at the buzzy vibrational quality, the sense of movement that stretches across the texture of this print. This print is full of lots of drapery being depicted in various states of dynamism, but there's also a sense in which the whole page is acting like a piece of moiré silk, propagating dynamism across its surface in its own way. Martin Kemp notices exactly this. Throughout the print, moiré patterns are repeated in declamatory fashion, giving a uniformly suave sheen to surfaces of otherwise quite different texture. The net effect is to make the figures look as if they're encased in membranes of diaphanous organza of relative degrees of fineness and translucency. All of this amounts to a sense of impropriety on the part of the engraver, and even a kind of insubordination the great Bill Ivins, was especially damning associating moiré with an almost criminal disregard for the representational task at hand. For him, the moiré of engraved lines amounts to uh, quote, forgetfulness of the picture, end quote. The engraver is just supposed to pass the image along, copy it so that it can be known, not literally to interfere with it in this way. So moiré is related to decadence, luxury, and distraction, even forgetfulness, and is understood as contaminating the proper focus on reproduction and subject matter and the interference of textile values, the meshiness and messiness of fabric is also always at issue. And what we'll see is that this disruptive power is exactly what can and has been used critically in contemporary art. Okay, so that was early modern line engraving. Let's pivot now to more modern reproduction technologies. As we've seen, the 19th and 20th centuries saw the rise of two new print technologies that transformed the reproduction and dissemination of images, the halftone and the screen print. Remember that both of these technologies sit very close to the world of textiles and weaving that is so central to the history of moiré and interference effects. Screen printing, again, is a mode of printing that literally uses a textile as a matrix. The halftone process, too, as we realized last week, involves filtering information through a mesh-like veil, light, through a grading rather than ink through an actual textile, but still the principle is similar. With the advent of these two technologies, moiré was suddenly everywhere because these technologies translated all images into a regular periodic structure, and also because they involved transparency, which increased opportunities for layering and superimposition of the images that were made with their logic. So this may seem a little bit weird. These print technologies technologies with their perfectly regular grids would seem to be very far removed from the charming old world of watered silk or 16th century line engraving. But of course, this is the paradox of moiré. It's precisely because of the unrelenting rationality of these image processing systems that moiré is actually produced by them. The halftone and the screen print are the great accelerators of moiré, inviting or enrolling moiré into the image world at an unprecedented scale. Indeed, as the 20th century progressed, it became more and more difficult to keep moiré away. Moiré is everywhere in the 20th century technical literature on printing, and the technical literature reads like a gothic novel or a horror story. Moiré is lurking everywhere, waiting to break out and ruin print jobs, a monstrous, irrational enemy ready to strike at any time. Screen printing manuals and technical discussions are especially gothic in this respect, especially when discussing the screen printing of halftones, a process that requires the assembly of these two pattern structures. Reading through the technical manuals, you're struck by the ubiquity, the irrationality, and the unpredictability of moiré. It can be generated by choosing... The wrong kind of screen mesh by choosing a screen mesh resolution that's too close to the resolution of the halftone. It can be caused by the artwork itself. For example, if someone in a photograph is wearing a tweed jacket, it can be caused by a screen that's not properly tensioned in its frame and thus sags slightly. It can be caused by the angle at which the halftone dots line up with mesh threads on the screen, etc., as the commercial printer Bill Stevens puts it, quote, moire is unpredictable. Unfortunately, it often doesn't show up until you're actually looking at the final print." End quote. In many mechanical print processes, moire is actually unavoidable, and all you can do is minimize its effects. The halftone color separations that sit behind most printed color photographs are the best example, perhaps. As we saw in the lecture on color separation, color printing involves breaking down the original image into four color-separated halftone matrices and then recombining them on a single sheet of paper to reconstitute the image as a print. But this recombination requires that four different periodic patterns be layered on top of each other, and that's essentially impossible to do without generating some kind of moiré. Printers have to use special formulas of offsetting the screens at very specific print angles to keep the arrays from lining up too closely. But patterning cannot be avoided. Color halftone separations organize themselves into moiré patterns known as rosettes, and the challenge is to reduce these because they cannot be entirely eliminated. In short, moiré is what happens when screens and grids and nets are allowed the power of assembly, And since the 20th century, information has increasingly been carried by media that rely on different combinations of these grid-like structures. This phenomenon, born of textiles and print, continues to inform the transfer of images today. And while I will not be directly addressing the videographic, telegraphic, or digital life of Moiré in this talk— It's obvious to all of us that this phenomenon born of textiles and print continues to inform the transfer of images. Indeed, it's on our screens that most of us today encounter moiré, especially, as I have discovered while studying prints, when we are looking at prints on our screens, and the regular structures of, say, the engraving or the halftone meet the gridded structures of our scanners, rendering software, and monitors. Here, too, we're confronted with the odd doubleness of moiré. On the one hand we associate it with contemporary digital transmission, but on the other hand it evokes the primordial world of miracles, water, wood, and silk. It was in pop art of the 1960s that we can say the moiré effect starts to be cultivated again in the same way that it was in early modern line engraving. This is because pop artists like Roy Lichtenstein and Ed Ruscha understood commercial media and its translations. Many, if not most, pop artists began as commercial artists and understood how commercial print technologies worked, and they were all engaged every day with the project of moving images into the systems of print and printmaking. They tended to be interested in showing and exploring the effects of these different systems meeting and clashing. So it is in the broad orbit of pop art that we find the moiré effect doing its most interesting and consequential work in the period following around 1960. And here are just a few examples showing that artists that were savvy about printing technology were deeply interested in these interference phenomena. Sigmar Polka. Here's Gerhard Richter. James Rosenquist. This is James Rosenquist's color screen print called Circles of Confusion, which features a field of blurry colors interspersed with the General Electric logo. As Rosenquist explains, circles of confusion is the term for the color dappling that appears in the viewfinder when you look through a camera lens into the sun. But it also applies beautifully to the shimmering pattern of the colors as the halftone screens interfere with each other here, generating large rosettes that Rosenquist has invited to erupt throughout the image. Notice that each of these three works feature photographs or photographic phenomena beset by the moiré effect. And now I wanna pause here for a moment and think about what this means for our understanding of photography in the 20th century, particularly in terms of its relationship to print. Our view of photography as the master mass medium of the 20th century is so thoroughly entrenched that it's hard to think otherwise. But these interference patterns that we're looking at here compel us to recognize that much of the logic of photography that permeated the 20th century is arguably in the last analysis, really a logic of print. We say that the images in 20th century newspapers, magazines, posters, broadsides, billboards, and art history books are photographs. But they're not, or not only, photographs. This is one of the most important points I want to make in this entire lecture series, even if it doesn't have an entire lecture devoted to it. These images are printed matter, ink on paper, made on printing presses. They may once have been, say, gelatin silver photographs, but they were translated into a halftone raster and transformed into binary printable surfaces and then printed. You can't really mass produce a photograph with a negative and enlarger and a tray of chemicals. You need to print it in ink on paper. You can't generate the moiré effect from raw gelatin silver photographs or 35 millimeter slides. Moiré depends on and announces the gridded patterns of the mass produced image. What we call photographs here live in the world of frequencies generated by the mesh structure of the halftone print. Much of the art and visual culture that we think about in photographic terms in the 20th century has hitched a ride on the back of print like the Apollo capsule on its rocket and boosters. And if we're truly to understand the mediascape of the 20th century, we must work harder to understand the way the logics of print lie beneath it. Now, you don't necessarily need to be dealing with photography as a pop artist to be interested in moiré. Ed Ruscha, for example, just goes straight to the fabric itself in a series of drawings made using moiré fabric as the support. Roy Lichtenstein's work is also relevant here. His work is famously based on ben Day dots. Now, ben Day dots are not exactly halftones in the way I've been discussing them, but they are another form of regular dot structure used for shading in commercial art. Lichtenstein was interested in the way printed images, despite their obviously mechanical regular structure, could evoke all manner of atmospheric wonders. He often attempted to define the zero degree of that transformation, that point, that line where the dot tipped over into the atmospheric world. He made these works by placing a perforated steel mesh over a field of dots, and that simple overlap created these atmospheric effects. So the moiré effect was one way of thinking about that transition between regularity and atmospherics. Perhaps his most interesting experiments with moiré came in his prints made using Rolux, an industrial material known as phased lenticular plastic, which is made in a way not dissimilar to moiré silk. It's made by embossing two thin sheets of plastic with grid-like arrays of lens-shaped impressions and then fusing them together. The array embossed on the front is organized so that it's slightly out of phase with the array on the back. And this causes the reflections of light through the sheet to adopt Warre patterns. So here in these works titled Landscapes 2 and 5, part of a series of landscapes made with Rolex, the interference patterns are folded back into their natural atmospheric and liquid origins or reference. These artists opened up moiré as a critical tool for the contemporary media landscape. One of the commonalities in the images I've shown here is that the moiré patterns operate at a large scale across the surface of the work, a much larger scale than the underlying halftone or screen patterns that generate them. They produce what I'll call a kind of critical magnification. In this, they were seizing on a property of moiré that had only recently been systematically explored by scientists and was just beginning to emerge in the popular scientific literature. Let me return to one of my first slides. Gerald Oster, a polymer scientist and biophysicist, was a pioneering researcher on the moiré effect and was also an artist. A 1963 article he co-authored with Yasunori Nishijima on moiré patterns in Scientific American summarized the history of moiré, including its operation in Japanese silks, and explored its instrumental possibilities. In the article, Oster and Nishijima seize upon moiré patterns as powerful magnification devices. They show, counterintuitively, that the smaller the misalignment between the two patterns, the greater the magnification. One of their primary examples involves the printing of halftones. If two halftone screens are offset by a large angle, As you see at upper left here, the moiré is difficult to perceive. But as the two are rotated so that the screens are only slightly misaligned, the magnification of the dot pattern increases drastically. In other words, the smaller the angle of misalignment, the larger the pattern. The authors suggest many ways of using this magnification technique to test and analyze objects for strain or imperfection. At this point, it's worth remembering that it's at precisely this moment in the 1960s that microscopic image structures like screen print meshes and halftones are rapidly occupying the space of the fine arts. And the way pop artists drew attention to these structures can perhaps now be understood as a parallel form of critical magnification, forcing these media back up into critical awareness in the same way that scientists thought that the moiré effect could be used to make visible the structural features of patterns below the threshold of the eye. Pop art's rhetoric of critical magnification had many forms, outsized photo screens, conspicuous band day dots, intentional silkscreen mishaps, and glaring misregistration. So many pop works were fundamentally about demonstrating that there were powerful forces pulsing invisibly below the visual threshold in the world of printed media. In this context, the adoption of moiré among artists is especially interesting. At precisely the moment that the workings of media retreat beneath the level of perception and move into the art world, moiré becomes articulable as a phenomenon that pulls media syntax back up to the scale of the body, to the level of human perception. And it's a phenomenon in which the media essentially does this to itself through the power of contact and combination. For an example of the way this kind of critical magnification connects to broader political or social issues, let's return to this print, Rosenquist's Circle of Confusion. For Rosenquist, these circles of confusion, though referring to halftone rosettes and photographic lens artifacts, also suggest other confusions besetting Americans in the Vietnam War era, particularly the increasingly pernicious overlapping that he saw between the consumer and the military sectors. Famously, GE was a defense contractor as well as a maker of light bulbs. In 1963-64, for example, it reported the highest profits from munitions of any U.S. company. In essence, Rosenquist here is using the emergent properties of Marais, a pattern made by the combination of other patterns, to evoke the uncertain new threats of the military-industrial complex, an emergent social-political-economic form that was looming up from the combination of consumer and military systems. The critical moiré here suggests a special form of detective work that reveals hidden aggregations and alliances of power, even though it cannot necessarily interpret the meaning of these aggregations. The revelatory potential of interference patterns is also explored in a project that Robert Rauschenberg completed soon after finishing his Stoned Moon series. In 1970, exhausted by information overload and the constant terrible news stemming from social unrest, Rauschenberg went to Malibu for a while to escape from current affairs. As he reportedly said, he had, quote, the intention of doing a large, peaceful watercolor, end quote. Instead, he ended up doing a project that managed, through the Moiré effect, to be both an intensive engagement with current affairs and also oddly watery. He created a set of collages from articles and advertisements clipped from multiple newspapers from January and February of 1970. These were then transferred to screens and printed. He titled it Current, no doubt playing on the double meaning of the term. The series is printed from three halftone screens, one for white, one for flat black, and one for gloss black. But instead of taking the necessary steps to avoid the inevitable moiré effect from the overlap of these color separations, Rauschenberg instead courted it by rotating one of the screens slightly off-register. The entire series of prints, then, is overtaken by moiré. What is the function of the moiré here? Why does Rauschenberg deliberately cultivate it in this current event's context, especially at a time when he's explicitly overwhelmed by the crush of current events? I think it's a way of expressing precisely that sense of anxiety and anticipation caused by these events, especially the sense that one can perceive but not fully understand that some system of meaning is being created. The interference patterns coursing across the prints, as if hovering just slightly above them, seem to recognize the shock of these events as well as a recognition that they form some kind of pattern. That pattern is not resolved, not clear, not visible, except as something like a vibration or a noise. It's as if Rauschenberg is giving us an image, not so much of a pile of overlapping newspapers, but a series of overlapping radio transmissions that are out of phase, and he keeps attempting to tune into the pattern so that it will make sense. I use the term tune in and the notion of vibration and noise quite intentionally. There is a powerful link between the interference patterns on these prints and the space of sound and sound media. Moiré is described with terms like frequency, beat, interference, amplitude, and periodicity, as is sound. Rauschenberg was a connoisseur of radio and broadcasting, which informs his work here. But the link between sound and moiré is much older than radio. Here we might recall Mueller's use of moiré to evoke sound in his engraving. If we jump ahead about 40 years to a work by Glenn Ligon, we can see the connection between sound, repetition, violence, and interference at work in a very explicit way in the present. And since Ligon has played such a large part throughout these lectures, we can also begin to see how interference effects line up with other printerly themes. This is a work from his series titled Come Out. These works are made from layered overlapping screen prints that repeat the phrase, come out to show them. The phrase is from a sound recording of the 1964 testimony of Daniel Ham, one of six young men wrongly charged with murder and beaten by police. Denied medical treatment because he had no open wounds to prove his ordeal, he resorted to opening his own bruises so that the blood would come out to show them, as it were. In layering and repeating the text, Ligon also nods to the musician Steve Reich's 1966 sound work Come Out, which looped that recording through 13 minutes of phase shifts and channel splits, releasing Ham's voice into a multidimensional oral space. There is so much here about body and voice and testimony and endless cycles of racial violence. Daniel Ham was a Black man. Is there a way out of these cycles, these structures? Ligen is not clear on this, but he does suggest that these cycles generate emergent patterns that are difficult to comprehend but need to be perceived. The grid meshes of the screen print matrix here produce moiré patterns that loom up, like bruises or smoke or some extra-dimensional shadow code that cannot yet be read. They suggest something, to borrow a term from the recording, coming out of the surface. What is that thing? It's not in focus, but it seems to suggest a premonition of a different way of figuring, of imagining, trying to burst out of the trap of the surface and perhaps of history. The moiré effect is a form of energy transformation, like the coal dust Lygon uses that we saw last week. Coal dust is a form of coal waste that is especially dangerous because it can suddenly ignite into a propagative explosion. Moiré is a byproduct of pattern layering that can produce sudden disproportionate change in an image. This is true literally as well as visually. For example, contemporary physicists are currently exploring the remarkable fact that if you stack two layers of graphene, a super thin kind of carbon sheet, at an angle that produces Moiré effects from the interference of their atomic structures, that material will become superconductive. When the layers are offset by the so-called magic angle of 1.1 degrees, they form hexagonal islands that allow electrons to move around freely with zero resistance. In other words, the material instantly becomes superconductive. The recent discovery of this capability of moiré has led to a flood of new research that goes by the name, and I kid you not, twistronics New papers are being published right now at a rapid clip that are exploring the potential of using the moiré effect as a physically transformational process. Holding in suspension the issues balanced in this work by Ligon, sound, smoke, and the body, I want to conclude by exploring the kind of surface and the kind of space that the moiré effect in print creates. I want to think about this as a kind of emergent surface. In the 60s and 70s, Rauschenberg and pop artists experimenting with Marais are doing so in an art world when various different models and philosophies of the picture plane are being hotly debated. The Renaissance windowpane picture plane, Greenberg's modernist picture plane, and especially Leo Steinberg's flatbed picture plane, an enormously productive model that was, as I mentioned in lecture one, developed out of Steinberg's encounter with Rauschenberg. But the surface beset by these eruptions of moiré does not quite fit with any of these models or any previous model of the picture plane. Artists cultivating the moiré effect are reaching toward, I think, a new model of spatial experience and representation. Moiré is made by pressing layers of mediated information into contact, pressing them together, layering them, as in any print. But it does not read as flat, nor is it the old Renaissance picture plane kind of space, opening out to familiar notions of scale or proximity or atmosphere. The autocatalytic qualities of moiré, the fact that it essentially makes itself, suggest a kind of living or responsive surface that these other models cannot capture. Robert Rauschenberg explored this notion of a live surface response in a set of prints he did in 1969, just before the Moon series. Tides, Drift, and Gulf are three large prints that all feature iconographies of bodies and flows. Tides, for example, includes a woman's bare torso along with a fireplug, a toilet bowl, and a series of other dimly perceived body parts. The other prints are similar, including some semi-pornographic imagery. Here, where the photographs overlap, Moiré emerges, as was common in his work of these years. Actually, Rauschenberg named these prints, Tides, Drifts, and Golf, Watery titles All, because of the watery effect of the moiré. Now, the fact that this moiré erupts in this carnal context is notable. The pattern in this realm suggests goosebumps or blushing or other physiological forms of epidermal sensitivity. There's a libidinal quality to the emergent space suggested by this surface. It's a surface that's not like a window or a tabletop, but something more like human skin. It's not unrelated to the sense of emergence from the body that we find in the bruising and bleeding in Lygon's work, although here it has much more positive connotations. Regardless, it has a strongly organic quality despite its technological origins. Rauschenberg's Stoned Moon series, in a different way, also explores this notion of a space defined and perceived by pressure and contact, a space known by and to the body as pressure and contact, rather than standard illusionism, which relies on an appeal to the eye. The stoned moon prints are full of rippling, pulsing surfaces occupied by spacesuits, boosters, and launch calculations. I don't think it's an accident that Rauschenberg confronted Moiré so intensively in the context of working through the Moon launch. Both the Moon launch and the Moiré effect enter into uncharted forms of spatial experience. Moiré gives us the sense that images are beginning to pull away from their normal gravitational constraints, that they are being somehow launched. Where are they going? What will the space built and experienced by these media look like? Like the extra orbital space between the Earth and the Moon, It is perhaps still a material space, but it will not have the familiar coordinates. The spaces of the Apollo program were largely mapped by radio and other non-optical wavelengths. They mapped by sound and pressure and were experienced in a profoundly defamiliarizing way by the bodies of astronauts. These were zero gravity spaces reached by sound and shock, held together by tenuous threads of physical contact and pressure. Like the paradox Rauschenberg evoked by using massive lithographic stones as the medium for understanding a zero-gravity environment, the space program raised the problem of imagining a kind of space that was both tactile and expansive, a zone in which mass and space related to each other in ways that could not be approximated in traditional illusionism. Traditional illusionism, in many ways, conflicts with print. Every illusionistic print is riven by a conflict between the spaces it evokes visually and the blind, close crush of pressure that creates it. Moiré for Rauschenberg, I think, is one way of suggesting a solution to this conflict, this problem. Moiré emerges from layers of contact, so it's a more palpable kind of space than you could get with something like Perspective. Also, moiré is not merely an illusion. It is as physically real as something can be in our current epistemologies. It's created by the literal overlap of structures out of phase. If it were just an illusion, for example, you could not make a superconductive material out of it. And in its relation to sound, to smoke, to shock, to waves of pressure propagating through particles in the air, it evokes ways of connecting, bridging, and defining space that rely on continuities of physical contact. Following on this and keeping these motifs of sound, smoke, emergence, and embodiment in play, I want to back up for a moment from the technical specificities of moiré and the space program program, and think in a more expansive sense about how all this might help us think about print in general. In the first lecture of this series, I insisted on print as a realm of direct physical contact and pressure. Like Rauschenberg's stony orbits, the challenge here is to imagine a form of exceeding the surface of the image without discarding the physicality of this contact and pressure. The challenge, to be true to print, we might say, is to find a way of rendering the air while always keeping it in literal contact with the ground. Let's return to one of the very first prints I showed in this series, John Cage's Aninka, made by setting paper on fire on the press bed and then extinguishing it by setting it under the roller, extinguishing it, in other words, by printing it. Cage worked from an understanding of smoke as a physical, particulate form of space and light, as something that stretches into wispy patterns that connect the flat space of the press with the air above it. His prints in smoke render that spatiality, that third dimension, in material form. The turbulent patterns of smoke link the flatbed picture plane to the space above it, materially rather than illusionistically. Two forms of pressure, we might say, are brought together here. The variations in air pressure generated by the heat of the fire, which direct the soot into its stochastic patterns, and then the pressure of the press, which fixes them at a particular moment of their stochastic evolution. Or perhaps just think back to the one of the first things I mentioned in this lecture, the aquatint process. Here, too, in a way that reverses the direction of the smoke prints, but preserves their basic dynamics, the flat space of the plate is being defined by stochastic air currents, corralling the rosin grains into random patterns on the plate. The plate is made physically by columns of air coming into contact with it through pressure and currents of turbulence. Both of these strike me as kinds of air sculpture or space sculpture, using the dynamics of atmospheric pressure as the chisel or the mold to produce an imprint on a surface. So the dynamics of moiré I have been tracing today link up with all other such artistic practices, practices that attempt to map or evoke spatial experience through pressure and contact rather than optics, whether or not they're technically prints. Often these dynamics, unsurprisingly, are most developed in the work of artists who work with and through sound. Sound, after all, is a picture of space made through beats and frequencies in which one space is connected to another at a distance through pressure and material vibration. I want to finish with just two contemporary examples by artists who are not overtly interested in moiré or even in print as such, but whose work combines sound, smoke, space, and the body in ways that parallel the impact of interference effects in print. This image is part of a portfolio of 50 prints by Houston-based artist Dario Robleto, made with Island Press in St. Louis in 2017. I curated an exhibition of Robleto's work two years ago, and since then these images have become touchstones for my thinking about the relationship between print, contact, space, and sound. The waveforms you see here, and throughout the portfolio, come from 19th-century cardiographic and pulse recordings, some of the first images made of the living interior of the body. They're literally palpated images, created by making contact with sounds and vibrations coursing through the flesh, then up and out through the surface of the skin. Many of these waveforms were recorded by scientists tracking responses to sensory or emotional stimuli, and thus they recall the emergent responsive surface that I have been discussing in this lecture. And like the moiré effect, these pulse waves opened a strange new space that could be known only through beats and frequencies transmitted through physical contact. To make the smoky ground in the prints, Robleto turned each impression upside down and hand sooted it from below with a burning candle held about an inch away from the surface. This calls back to the original scientific imaging process in which the vibrations emanating from the body were recorded with instruments that inscribed the delicate waveform into a micro-thin layer of soot on candle-smoked paper. It also recalls Cage's fire prints in the way it evokes space materially. The space here seems vast and cosmic, but there is no emptiness here, no mere illusion. Sound and smoke cannot travel in a vacuum. It's a space made and traversed by material propagation. Although Robleto engages with printmaking traditions in a completely unique and experimental way here, this work calls back to the history of print in several respects. It recalls the historic process of sooting copper plates in order to make it easier for engravers to see the lines they are carving. And it recalls the fact that soot has been the primary ingredient in printing inks for centuries. We might think of Robleto's smoke here as a form of inking that takes place in a deferred and slightly opened space between the ink and the plate. But more than anything, in its insistence on palpability, it calls back to the way that the space of printed images is built on touch. It's a space mapped first by touch but only later given over to the eye. And when properly tuned, the contact at the heart of print can pull open forms of space that capture experience beyond the everyday visual realm. And finally, I want to spend some time with the work of Chai Guo Chong, a Chinese artist who works with what he calls explosion events. This huge drawing, and I'd of course call it a print, is made by setting off an array of contained explosions. It's a series of fossilized fireworks. Works like this are made by placing high-quality handmade Japanese paper on the floor, arranging gunpowder over it, covering it with another sheet of paper, and then cardboard and stones to weigh it down, and then setting off the explosion. The blast is barely contained by the leaping stones, and with those leaping stones, we might see this as an upside-down version of Rauschenberg's stone launch lithographs. Evoking the long history of gunpowder and fireworks both invented in China, the artist describes his work as being based in alchemy and Taoism combined with modern physics. And it also recalls a lot about what I've already said about printmaking. The image is made in a dark, closed space, under pressure, that allows for the transfer of marks between surfaces. After the explosion, Tsai usually exhibits both the upper and lower paper surfaces, so that the reversal and reflection of the imprint remains active, composing the final work. The final work may evoke a certain atmospheric visuality, but it was made by blind contact, by shock waves carrying matter and sound. It's an image imprinted by reverberation, as if it were a rubbing of a disturbance in the air. And as in Cage and Robleto's smoke imprints, it gives us an experience of light, but only in a material, particulate way, as a sooty after-effect. And then there's the suddenness of it, the triggering. The way the combination or layering of materials on a flat surface suddenly erupts into something else altogether, something not yet mapped or mappable like the way the experience of space transforms in the vicinity of a rocket launch or a war zone, or the way the overlapping repetition of Daniel Ham's voice billows up and out into an explosive pattern of transformational anguish, or the way a goosebump or shimmer or shiver suddenly erupts from a cross-historical crosshatch. Print is a palpation of images, and as it passes them from hand to hand, those contacts have a way of interfering with our habitual ways of being and knowing. Thank you for watching and listening today. Next week we will have our final lecture titled Alienation.